Now for our scripture reading from the New Testament, we turn to First uh, John chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn to the Belgic Confession, and we're going to read Articles 8 and 9. They're rather lengthy, but we're going to read both of these articles concerning the doctrine of the Trinity and the, the scriptural the foundation for that. In keeping with this truth and the Word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. 
Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Father, and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons thus distinct are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without his Son, nor without his Holy Spirit. Since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence, there is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one in truth and power and goodness and mercy. Article 9, the Scripture Witness on the Trinity. All these things we know from the testimony of Holy Scripture, as well as from the effects of the persons, especially from those we feel within ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures, which teach us to believe in this Holy Trinity, are written in many places of the, Holy, of the Old Testament, which need not be enumerated, but only chosen with discretion. In the book of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Indeed, male and female, he created them. Behold, man has become like one of us. It appears from this that there is a plurality of persons within the deity. When he says, let us make man in our image, and afterwards he indicates the unity when he says, God created. It is true that he does not say here how many persons there are, but what is somewhat obscure to us in the Old Testament is very clear in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in the Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard, saying, This is my dear Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. So in the baptism of all believers, this form was prescribed by Christ. Baptize all people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel according to Luke, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the mother of our Lord, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore that Holy One who is to be born of you shall be called the Son of God. And in another place it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. In all these passages, we are fully taught that there are three persons in the one and only divine essence. And although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, we nevertheless, nevertheless believe it now through the word, waiting to know and enjoy it fully in heaven. Furthermore, we must note the particular works and activities of these three persons in relation to us. The Father is called our Creator by reason of His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His living in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained in the true Church, from the time of the Apostles until the present, against Jews and Muslims, and certain false Christians and heretics, such as Marcion, Manny, Praxias, Sibelius, Paul of Samosota, Arius and others like them, 
who were rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so, in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the outset of our uh, study of the Belgic Confession, beginning with Article 1 concerning God, we confess that God is incomprehensible. It means that he is great beyond our knowledge, the grasp of our minds, hearts. And uh, that is certainly true when it comes to uh, God as triune, as one God in three persons. It's not something that is known by reason. It's not something that can be adequately grasped uh, by uh, clever comparisons that people might come up with. Uh, in Article uh, 9, we confess that uh, this doctrine surpasses human understanding. But we do know it to be true by the testimony of Scripture, and uh, our confession makes that clear as well, that we know this because it's revealed to us in God's Word. And that testimony is very clear. Uh, Article 9 especially takes us through some of the uh, the most prominent and uh, explicit testimonies concerning the Trinity, but they're found throughout Scripture in both Old and New Testament. Though we also confess that uh, this doctrine is uh, somewhat obscure to us in the Old Testament. It is more fully, more clearly uh, revealed in the New Testament. But we must be certain that... Uh, a belief in the Trinity is inseparable from a true knowledge of God. And a true knowledge of God, again, is different than an, a, a comprehensive or an exhaustive knowledge of God. Uh, we can know God truly uh, without knowing Him completely. In fact, it's impossible for creatures to know God with a kind of complete and exhaustive knowledge. We would have to have the mind of God in order to know God in that way. But we confess and believe in this one God as revealed in Scripture, as existing in three persons. And that also means that uh, we do not agree with those who would say that, well, uh, we all believe in the same God. We all believe in one God, along with Muslims, for example, or along with Jews, or along with uh, uh, theological liberals, uh, who may profess to be Christians, and along with a variety of sects and cults that, that claim to worship God, but they, they do not know God truly. We read in verse 20 of First uh, John 5 that uh, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We read earlier in this same chapter that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Inseparable from true faith and a true knowledge of God is the knowledge of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that also means that the doctrine of the Trinity is not some uh, small detail, kind of, a kind of specialized knowledge for theologians who like fine distinctions and who like to talk about such things as opposed to some simple faith in God. 
Calvin said that without the knowledge of God as the triune God, we have only a bare and empty name of God floating in our brains without any idea of the true God. And that also means that uh, though we cannot grasp, we cannot comprehend the, 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 the depth and the meaning of God as triune, <coughs> we must also resist a kind of anti-doctrinal mentality it says, well, uh, we don't really need to have sermons on this uh, rather difficult doctrine. It's kind of confusing, and uh, uh, we, we know enough already without continuing to uh, seek to grow in our grasp of what is revealed in Scripture. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And uh, the richer our knowledge of God... According to the revelation of Scripture, the more biblical our worship will be, and the greater our comfort will be, and the deeper our fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, will be. So we confess the wondrous glory of our triune God, and we'll begin by considering the unity of the divine essence. And I realize again that uh, this word essence seems to be kind of a slippery idea to us. It's, uh, it's found a number of times in the Belgian Confession. We have, we have heard this word describing God, but, uh, we want to consider what it really refers to. <clears throat> uh, the Belgian Confession also, uh, shows from scripture that God is referred to in plural terms. Let us make man in our own, our own image. And yet it speaks of God, uh, in the singular. God made man after his own image. And, uh, so we're, we're concerned in this point with the oneness of God. And particularly the oneness of his essence. And the word essence here we are to understand as referring to, to God's nature. As God. Uh, in, uh, Second Peter chapter one, we are told of, uh, these, uh, exceedingly great and precious promises whereby we have become partaker of the divine nature, having escaped, uh, the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so, uh, as believers, we, we partake of, uh, something of God's nature. And that would take us back to Article 1 that speaks of God's nature, his, his characteristics in terms of love and mercy and, and goodness. And uh, these are communicable attributes in the sense that in some small way, uh, these characteristics of God's nature can be also produced in us by the renewing work of God's grace and spirit so that we become like God in some limited ways, but we can come to reflect his mortal, moral character, indeed, in a very limited way. But uh, these attributes of God are uh, presented as belonging to God's very nature. Or Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 9, speaks of Christ as one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And so the essence of God 
refers to his nature, his divinity, his Godhead, or his Godness. And again, we could refer back to Article uh, 1 for uh, a fuller uh, description of, of God in terms not only of his communicable attributes that we may share in some measure, but also his incommunicable, incommunicable attributes, which are absolutely unique to God. But much to the point here is the fact that when we speak of three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this in no uh, way means three gods. Three gods as if each has a share or a part of these attributes. As if the nature of God is divided into three, which each, with each person possessing a third of those uh, uh, characteristics of God's no- nature. No, no. Rather, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each possess fully this one nature. They are co-essential. The Athanasian Creed uh, uh, spells that out in, in more detail. I want to read uh, a number of these articles of the Athanasian Creed. It's on page 150. I'm going to read articles 3 through 20. And... Uh, we earlier prayed that we would listen to God's word uh, with a with a, a reverent mind and heart, uh, even a worshipful mind and heart. And uh, reading such creeds truly require and call forth a worshipful and reverent mind as they confess the wonder of our triune God. Uh, listen, listen to this uh, beginning at Article Three. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So, too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither... Well, we'll stop there and uh, refer uh, further to the remaining articles concerning the distinctness of of the persons. 
So that means that there is no contradiction between the three persons of the Trinity and the one uh, God that the Deuteronomy proclaims. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one divine essence, and the three persons fully possess that divine nature. And this oneness of God shapes our worship. In First Timothy chapter 1, we read, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, who is being referred to here in this language? Well, uh, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. So this is a reference to the one God who is the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. So there are not three gods among whom our devotion is divided. And to put it another way, we might say that any focus upon one person of the Trinity involves the worship of the whole divine nature. Now, at this point, I can imagine you thinking, perhaps saying to yourself, well, well, that's, that's confusing. How can we worship God uh, with thoughts of his oneness without neglecting the three persons? Or how can we give attention to the three persons without neglecting the oneness of God? In this connection, I'll ask you to listen to one of the church fathers uh, named Gregory of Nazianzen, a 4th century uh, Christian teacher and leader. He said this, he says, I cannot think of the one, but I am immediately surrounded by the glory of the three. Nor can I clearly discover the three, but I am suddenly carried back to the one. And uh, this is a quotation that I've read uh I've read it cited, and then it was referenced with the fact that uh, this was a quotation that vastly delighted John Calvin. And so uh, this sense of uh, our, our focus, yes, being on one or the other persons of the Trinity does not exclude uh, immediate thoughts about the greatness and the grandeur of the almighty one God whom we worship. And this really is a, an expression of the richness of an experiential knowledge of God. You might say, well, how can we, how can we grasp that or how can we grow in that? Well, I would hope that even reading, uh, the Athanasian Creed or even reading Article 8 and 9 might, uh, not simply be a rare event when a preacher preaches on these articles or happens to read the Athanasian Creed but sometimes turn to them for reflection. Turn to them for, for meditation. Learn something of this language of the triune God that we worship. Learn those rich Trinitarian hymns that extol the one God in three persons, blessed Trinity, in which we confess and sing about the distinct works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as we worship this one God. And it's by familiarity with the Scripture, by familiarity with our confession, even by familiarity with those wonderful uh, hymns that do express the fullness of New Testament revelation concerning the Trinity. We ourselves can be more and more established, and we can more and more delight in the Trinity. You know how uh, we love the Psalms. And... Uh, 
Any church that does not sing the Psalms really is impoverished because the Psalms are so important as they teach us the reality of, of the antithesis, as they constantly speak of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, as they hold before us constantly the greatness of God, as they give voice to our own sorrows and struggles, our depressions, these songs of lament. There are no hymns of lament that I know of. As they teach us the language of worship and prayer. And that's why our church order even requires that we give the principal place to the Psalms in public worship. But I believe that it could also be argued that a neglect of good hymns also involves a kind of diminished appreciation, perhaps, or uh, enjoyment of the kind of New Testament worship that respects the fullness of New Testament revelation. Because the doctrine of the Trinity, as we confess, was not so clearly known or confessed or taught in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And good hymns reflect the fullness of that New Testament revelation. And they help us in our singing also to worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So pay attention to those those great hymns that are rich with Trinitarian uh, worship and instruction. And we will grow. If, if not in our grasp of giving all the fine distinctions in these definitions, but rather in a heart of reverential worship for our triune God and a growth in terms of understanding how that helps us in our prayers and in the way we think of our great God. But that leads us, uh, secondly, to consider the distinction of the divine persons. And this distinction of the divine persons does not involve uh, different forms of God. There are not different forms of God. Those were the errors of men like uh, Praxeus or Sibelius. As if, uh, to put it this way, as if God were some kind of shapeshifter. As if God sometimes reveals himself as Father, perhaps in the Old Testament. And then, in the New Testament, God reveals himself as Jesus. And then in the church ages, God reveals himself as the Holy Spirit. As if these are different forms of God. That's actually one of the problems with some of the analogies and comparisons that are sometimes made to help people... Uh, Think about the Trinity. It's like, think of water. Well, water can be in liquid form, or it can be in the form of ice, or it can be in the form of, of steam. But basically, ice, steam, and uh, liquid are various forms of water. And it's not as if the one God sometimes takes on the form of the Father, and then He'll take on the form of the Son, and then He'll take on the form of the Holy Spirit. Remember the baptism of Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all present, active. The Father speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit uh, appearing in a dove-like form, and the Son being baptized and hearing the word of the Father as he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about different forms of God. The difference is not a form, but a distinction of persons. We confess that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinguished by incommunicable attributes or properties. They have distinct properties that are real, that are eternal, and that are true. 
And so while each person is fully God, each person possesses an identity that is uniquely his own, that is not shared. And that's what it means by not communicable. There's a uniqueness to certain properties of the persons of the Trinity. And uh, the very names of the persons of the Trinity by which God is revealed communicates these distinct properties. The Father, the Father we confess to be the cause and origin of all things, visible and invisible. The Father is the origin when it comes to creation, when it comes to salvation. Yes, the Son and the Holy Spirit are present in divine works in relation to uh, God's creative power. But there is a priority given to the Father, not in time, but in terms of order, if you will. This is an eternal distinction. He was Father. Father from all eternity. He was Father from before the creation of the world. He was Father before there were any human beings made in His image that could know Him as Father. Because He was eternally the Father in relation to the Son. The Father begot the Son by an eternal generation. There was never a time in which the Son was not. He is eternally begotten by the Father. There is neither first nor last. The Father and the Son are co-eternal. And so when we confess that the Father is the cause and origin of all things visible or invisible, we are not saying that the Father is first in existence in relation to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nor do we say that the Father actually communicates the divine nature to the Son. Even as the Father has life in himself, the Son is self-existent. But as the Son, there's a sense in which uh, that was communicated to him in relation to his sonship. Not in terms of his divine nature, but his sonship. So it's an eternal relationship such that the Father was never without the Son, nor the Son ever without the Father. Yeah, that's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? But we want to we want to go as far as the Scripture takes us, and we want to worship and adore and grow in those kinds of definitions that that do not enable us to comprehend it, but they keep us from mistakes, they keep us from error, and they assist us in our worship and adoration. The Son, the Son is distinguished from the Father and the Holy Spirit as the only begotten. And he is the word. He is the wisdom and image of the Father. And that pertains to his, his work also in our redemption as the revealer of God, the one who manifests the Father's glory. And he does so by his perfect likeness to the Father. That is his office and work with reference to our salvation. In verse 6 of chapter 5, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And again, in, in uh, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. In union with Jesus Christ, we are united to the Father. This is the true God and eternal life. John's Gospel especially highlights this saving work of the Son to manifest the Father. Think of his words to Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Have I been so, with you so long, Philip, and yet you have not known me? Yes, Jesus reveals the Father. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, even the name, again, communicates uh, the distinct eternal property of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, is sometimes rendered with the word wind or breath. We sing, breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I might love what thou dost love, do what thou dost do. Think of Jesus when he breathed on his disciples and said, be, receive the Holy Spirit. That's one of those passages that for, provide the, the, the basis for our confession that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And again, by way of this, this analogy, this comparison to, to breath, life-giving breath, God breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being. This almighty power, this creative breath, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. All the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The eternal power of God and might. You might even say, even by, even by a weak human analogy, this uh, shows the eternity of the Holy Spirit. It carries out the purposes of God. So these are some of the distinct uh, properties and workings of the persons of the Trinity. And then that leads us finally to consider the variety of their divine work on our behalf. And we've already begun to do that. But our confession does focus on this specifically, reminding us also that this doctrine of the Trinity is a saving doctrine. And it's an experiential doctrine. He is the God of our life. The Father is the origin of our spiritual life in His love. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son in His election. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is the Father who sent His Son. It is the Father who adopts us as His children in Christ. The only begotten Son willingly came into this world, born in time of a virgin, to be our Redeemer. And he revealed the Father, and he reconciled us to him by his blood, and he became our Savior. And the Holy Spirit, with his quiet, almighty power, applies the purpose of the Father and the work of the Son. The Spirit works new life uh, in our souls, even as he was present in a more intimate way in creation. The Spirit of God hovered over over the deep, speaking something of his intimate creative power at work. The Holy Spirit witnesses to the word and the work of the Son. The Holy Spirit uh, came to dwell in us, to sanctify us, to keep us, to nurture us in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And again, I know this is just a brief way of highlight some, highlighting some of the particular works of the persons of the Trinity. But brothers and sisters, this is the God whom we worship and adore. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And this also explains uh, the jealousy of the church uh, to defend and confess this, this teaching carefully, biblically, worshipfully. Like the Athanasian Creed, it's like it's, it's, uh, it has two bookends. It begins this way. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. 
Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And then the final article, this is the Catholic faith that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. This is not a fine point. This is not an optional teaching. This is not some obscure, uh, confusing doctrine. No, this is the revelation of our God, our Savior, the triune God whom we worship. That jealousy explains that con- conviction that was... Uh, Evident even in this confession to pronounce condemnation on those who deny it. Now that sounds harsh, but isn't it a loving thing to do to call people from idolatry? Isn't it a loving thing to call people from a view of God that sees him as some kind of a solitary being existing without fellowship, existing without love? God is love. Well, God would be love and God would be manifested, and or God would manifest that love and enjoy that love in the inter-Trinitarian relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Had he, had he never created a world? God didn't create the world because he was lonely. God didn't create the world because there was some deficiency to his glory. No, God chose to, to share and manifest the wonder of his love and to call others into a fellowship of love with the triune God. And it's a loving thing to call people away from idolatry to know the living and true God. And we must hold uh, to this teaching of Scripture then in a warm and in a in an experiential way. In our cares and in our fears, we run to God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us with a tender love, who ad- has adopted us to be His children, who cares for us, so that without His will, not a hair falls from our head. In our guilt, in our fears, and under a load of trouble, we remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who took our place, who suffered for us, who removes our condemnation by His blood, in whom we are justified, accepted. In our darkness, in our weakness and failings, we plead the help of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. God has given to us to dwell with us forever. You see, it's in this triune God that we are blessed. Think of the form of, of, uh, of, of baptism. How baptism witnesses and seals unto us the wonder of these gracious saving works of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because we're baptized into the name of the triune God. And so those who deny this doctrine, who do not uh, see it and receive it, well, we see them as lost sinners to be pitied. Because to be without the knowledge of the true God is to be without God and to be without hope in this world. And how we then ought to be moved by this grace shown to us. How it ought to move us indeed to doxology. How we ought to delight uh, to end our worship services as we so typically do, not only with a Trinitarian blessing, but so characteristically with Trinitarian doxology of worship and praise to our triune God. Amen.